0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this special edition of Have We Got Planning News for You. This is such a topical week that um, we can't believe uh, how clever we are in organising Clive Betts to be our special guest this week. You will recall that he is chair of the Leveling Up Housing Communities uh, Committee, which has published their report earlier uh, in the month on the reforms to the national planning policy. And What a reaction that report seems to have stimulated. My goodness me. We had the Prime Minister on Monday telling us that there was going to be a million homes built in the uh, lifetime of this uh, Tory government. We had uh, Mr Gove making a a, a similar speech uh, with all sorts of emphasis on certain parts of the country. Uh, We then had a consultation uh, one minute after midnight Uh, On Monday night, Tuesday morning, on the local plans. Then we had another consultation on NSIP um, projects. And then we've got another uh, more detailed, nuanced point on permitted development rights, shops, takeaways, and betting shops going to RESI. So uh, Clive's committee has certainly stimulated some response. So, how appropriate for us to have this special edition? We're going to kick off, as usual, with our Uh, Summaries, case summaries, and then I'm very much looking forward to Sasha's interview with Clive Now, let's introduce the rest of the panel Chris, where are you speaking to us from?
1: Hi Mary, what a great introduction that was, yeah, busy, busy time Uh, I am in the Isles of Silly, and uh, I don't know if you can see out there, but Lovely Lovely, but pretty windy Uh, However, that's good because we've been sailing all week so uh, we love it when it's windy and um, we don't mind a bit of rain benedict cumberbatch is just next door in another house um uh and so uh, everybody's getting a bit excited about that uh so yeah i'm all the with the family and having a fantastic holiday thank you super paul
2: where are you uh I, i'm at home I, i'm happy to say up in the northeast uh, i have been in sheffield for the start of the week but the Second half of my inquiry this week has been done online, so I have the joy of being at home. Um, uh, Chris, if Benedict comes back to the next door, can you find out if he's got a link to planning and get him on the show, please? Don't let him leave the island without that. Uh, yeah. Normally, we would be saying, what What are we drinking? But since it's uh, it's just after dawn on a Thursday morning, I'm drinking orange So cheers to everybody, and cheers to Clyde when he comes on.
0: Thank you very much, Sasha.
3: I am in London. I am on my way to the Oval. Unfortunately, not seeing see England the Ashes, but to applaud the Australians for retaining the Ashes with the most defensive performance for a summer as possible to have. But um, delightful to see you all in the nights of summer. I'm much looking forward to the
0: show. Thank you, Sasha. And I couldn't agree more with you. My family will all be at the Oval on Sunday, cheering um England on. So, without further ado. Uh, shall we go straight into our case summary? And we start with Chris, who's going to tell us about the Fry and Son High Court Challenge.
1: Indeed. Uh, and uh, if Rob can bring up the uh, the screen, we've got the uh, the case. It's C.G. Uh, C. Fry and Son against the Secretary of State and Somerset Council. And uh, this involved our very own Charlie Banner. Um, and uh, it's an issue all about nutrients, and in this case all about phosphates, and uh, it's quite complicated. So the case concerns potential adverse effects on the Somerset levels and um, Moore's Ramsar site uh, from the claimant's proposed housing-led development on land east of Wellington in Somerset. The claim arises in the context of the issue of nutrient neutrality and in broad terms, this issue relates to the phosphate loading of protected water habitats, uh, leading to eutrophication. This is caused by reasons including agricultural practices, as we know, and underinvestment in water infrastructure. Uh, but there is a risk of the problem being exacerbated by water generated by new developments which contain phosphates, principally from foul water, i.e. what goes down the toilet. The Home Builders Federation states that due to the unavailability of mitigation options, this issue is holding up the building of no fewer than forty-four thousand homes in England, which already have planning permission, and that's what the case was about—a site that already has planning permission. Now, in the present case, Somerset Council uh, was faced with an appeal, um, and that appeal was determined by an inspector, and the inspector agreed with the council, and he uh, dismissed the appeal. The appeal was into the discharge of certain conditions attached to a grant of planning permission, um, and uh, it was actually conditions attached to a reserve matters approval. That was because uh, the refusal by the inspector, dismissed by the inspector, was because there had not been an appropriate assessment under the Habitats Regulations 2017, and consequently, certain pre commencement conditions had not been discharged and phase, phase. of the development uh, had not been able to proceed. Now the claimant, represented by Charlie launched this claim for statutory review under section 288 of the Town and Country Planning Act and challenged the inspector's decision and as a matter of law the challenge raised issues about the scope and application of the uh, the UK's withdrawal from the European Union uh, in respect of the habitat regulations and the habitat directive on which it was based And uh, those are the legal grounds. As the judge recorded, though, uh, Sir Ross Cranston, it's for others to resolve the significant public policy issues underlying this claim, raised by the Home Builders Federation and the ministerial statements, and both of which he outlined in the judgment. So we've got a case here where the judge is making clear, I'm deciding this on the law, the issues that are affecting the house building industry, are for others to determine, i.e. the politicians, and we know work is going on with that. But the challenge was unsuccessful. Here's the the background to it. In December 2015, the council granted outline planning permission for a mixed-use development of 650 houses. The planning permission was subject to several conditions, including condition 4, which was a site-wide surface water drainage strategy. And uh, that condition was discharged about a year later. Uh, And then, uh, pursuant to the planning permission, um, it was required that reserve matters be submitted. In June 2020, the claimants obtained reserve matters approval for Phase 3. It was 190 dwellings of those 650, but it was subject to conditions. And uh, these conditions included, again, a condition 4 about surface water drainage. Now, in August 2020, Natural England published their advice note on the Somerset local authorities, uh, uh, for the Somerset authorities on development in relation to the Ramsar site. And the advice note referred to um, the Dutch nitrogen case. And in the wake of that case, the advice note read that greater scrutiny was required of plans and projects that will result in increased nutrient loads which may have an effect on special protection areas, special conservation areas, and Ramsar sites as well. Um, Ramsar sites are not designated under the Habitats Regulation 2017, but they are caught by um, the MPBF, which it invites decision makers or tells decision makers to treat them as the same. Now, whilst Natural England was satisfied that there wouldn't be an effect on the Somerset Levels uh, SPA, uh, it was concerned about the Ramsar site because of the risk of eutrophication uh, caused by excessive phosphates. And they concerned that the improvements to the sewage treatment works uh, were, along with minor matters to tackle agricultural pollution, would not resolve the issue and uh, there would still be a problem. So, Natural England advised the competent authorities they should undertake an appropriate assessment under the habitat regulations of the implications of the project or plan and only grant consent where they were satisfied and this is the test that the proposal will not have an adverse effect on the integrity of the site the inspector issued his decision in June 2021 and the claimant had sought discharge of various conditions including condition 4 but uh, various others as well and um, the uh, the position uh, was that the council refused the application hence it went to appeal and uh, the inspector contended that it should be dismissed because there was no appropriate assessment under the Habitats Regulations, and that was required. Um, he dismissed the appeal because he was determined he determined that it was legitimate to apply paragraph 181. That's the one that applies the Ramsar sites uh, um, applies to Ramsar sites and requires the same protection as other European sites the inspector determined that the requirement for an appropriate assessment applied to the discharge of conditions. So although this was a discharge of conditions on reserve matters, he rejected the claimant's argument that the inclusion of the specific provisions relating to the grants of planning permission, including an outline, um, meant that it didn't need to be dealt with at this stage. And I think we all knew that was probably the likely outcome because the case law says that um, the effects of uh, European directives um, including Eia and it's this case makes clear the habitats regulations can be catched or can be caught at any stage of the because the European regulation 63 relating to habitats refers to consent mission or other authorization so it isn't just the planning permission. Um, now as far as the um, uh, the High Court challenge was concerned, the claimants case in general terms, was that the effect of the additional phosphate loading from the proposed development was not a material consideration to the determination of the conditions in this case. And uh, it was suggested uh, by the claimant that it was legally irrelevant because it fell outside of the specific parameters of what the outline planning commission and the reserve matters approval had left for consideration at this stage. In other words... Those issues should have been dealt with at outline or reserve matter stage, not the discharge of conditions, and therefore the Habitats uh, Directive shouldn't apply in this case, and nor should the concerns of Natural England. And uh, and what the inspector said was that um, uh, he had re- he'd rejected that argument, and the court largely upheld that on ground one. Um, what uh, Sir Roy Cranston Ross Cranston said was in broad terms. Um, he agreed with Charlie that Regulation 70 should apply only to planning permission. So Regulation 70 of the domestic regulations relating to Habitat should only apply to planning permission and not these other stages. However, he went on to to say, whilst that was a strict reading of the regulations, um, he felt, in his view, that Article 6.3 of the Habitats Directive should be interpreted purposefully and um, the case law that follows that uh, that uh, particular provision was also binding on him and this relates to the european withdrawal uh, withdrawal from the european union where actually directives are said not to have an effect but they do have an effect if there's case law that subsequently interprets that so the overall conclusion From the judge, is it paragraph 64 of the judgment? He says the upshot is the Habitats Directive and Habitats Regulations mandate that an appropriate assessment be undertaken before a project is consented. That is irrespective of whatever stage the process has reached according to UK planning law. The basal fact in this case is that neither at the permission nor the reserve matters or the discharge of conditions stage had there been an appropriate assessment. The application of the habitats directive and a purpose of interpretation of the habitats regulations require the application of the assessment provisions to discharge the conditions. And the strict precautionary approach required would be undermined if they were limited to the initial permission stage in a multi-stage process. There were two other grounds of appeal. Those were dismissed as well. But the important point to say is that the judge himself granted uh, Charlie's uh, team, Charlie's client, permission to leapfrog the Court of Appeal and take this matter straight to the Supreme Court, such as the significance of the issue. And um, that then is for the Supreme Court to decide whether they wish to take it on. If not, it will be determined by the Court of Appeal. Thank you very much, Mary.
0: Well, thank you, Pierce. uh That's quite a start to the day. Uh, Paul, <laughs> the, the, the Swindon, please. Let's go to Swindon.
2: Well, well I, I, after that case, things can't get more important than to talk about Swindon. Um, Swindon, as we know, is a, a a town halfway between London and Bristol, which dates back to the Bronze Age. And according to Wikipedia, has literally nobody interesting from there. It's the only town, oh, look at a Wikipedia in, in, intro, in, in, which we says nobody of note from Swindon. So there must be someone. So the good burgers of Swindon need to get on and tell me who's from Swindon. Um, anyway, there is also a Roman town to the east of Swindon, uh, called Duro Canovium. I've spent the last 20 minutes trying to practice how that is, and that comes into the whole tale uh, of what's happened in this case, which is a bit of a sorry tale, and it's relevant, uh, although it's not as important as, as the case that Chris has just identified, because it beautifully illustrates what an absolute mess our system currently is. So you had back in November of last year, and in fact I think we covered it briefly on the show, an appeal uh, allowed by Mr. Inspector Sims, um, for 220 houses, uh, so a bit of uh, Class A uh, and also a new primary school on a site on the east of Swindon within an area uh, uh, called Foxbridge Village North, which is part of an allocation referred to uh, in the decision as the NEV, uh, although the decision doesn't actually tell us what NEV uh, stands for. so You have to dive into the, uh, the background documentation. It's an allocation of the adopted local plan for a huge number of dwellings, 8,000 dwellings, which were meant to come forward in small villages. And each village was meant to have a primary school. And the council uh, brought forward an SPD on the back of uh, an infrastructure policy saying, we want every site that comes forward to contribute fairly to infrastructure. And it has the usual shopping list that you would expect to see, except in this instance, the shopping list for infrastructure contributions that the council was looking for was huge. The difference between the council and the appellant and Sask can tell me if I'm wrong in relation to this uh, as reported, was the council wanted a meager 6,655,000 uh, from uh, uh, the developer for infrastructure. They wanted a two-form entry school, notwithstanding uh, that that uh, uh, there was no evidence that you would get beyond a one-form entry school, even with the development and even with the adjacent development. Uh, and the council's position was that if you didn't bring forward development in accordance with our SPD on the back of our policy then the development wasn't sustainable well you have a very common sense and sensible decision from the inspector saying don't be daft all these policies are qualified you've got to look at viability the rest of the allocation isn't coming forward as expected so i'm going to determine this application essentially on its merits mindful of the context within which within it comes forward so there was an agreement of 15 percent affordable housing for example which is half of what was viable as being what was, what was the appropriate figure. That was actually in the state of the common ground. I say that with a degree of jealousy, having spent the last two days arguing about the viability of a, a building in Sheffield. Um, so there was no argument that uh, Sash had to talk about in terms of all the exciting input you have for viability. So you get a very sensible decision from the inspector, essentially saying, you haven't got a five-year land supply. You need this housing. I know he's not delivering everything you want. You've got a lot of aspirations, but I'm going to allow the appeal. There's then a challenge under Section two eighteen, which came before His Honour Judge Jarman, sitting as a Deputy High Court judge. and There were three grounds of challenge, and the grounds of challenge were quite techie. Um, so um, the, the first was an, an interpretation of the infrastructure policy, which essentially said you can't qualify what's in the infrastructure by viability assessments in terms of what's, what's required, both from the SPD and the overarching policy. And uh, the judge said, well, it actually is qualified because it says as appropriate, and as appropriate can be where viable. Uh, the, the second one uh, was the approach that was taken to precedent, where the, the inspector dealt with this quite quickly and said, look, this doesn't bind any other decision in relation to this. I'm deciding this on its merits. And uh, essentially the complaint was, well, hold on, you're not really grappling with this point. And they just said, well, you don't have to if it's not one of the big issues. So even though it was an issue uh, identified in closing submissions, it wasn't one of the principal arguments that was being considered. And then the, the, the third ground of challenge was essentially a detailed critique of how the approach to the school was, was considered. And again, the judge rejected that. So you've got a very detailed challenge to so a very carefully uh, combined judgment. But the point is this. This is an allocation. It's part of an allocation which is largely stalled. It's bringing forward housing. The application came forward in, in April of 2020, Refused two years later, then goes to inquire in October 2022. Decision within a month from the inspector. Big up to the planning inspector for getting it out so quickly. And then we've got to wait almost a year later to find it free from challenge. Th- that's a broken system. And it uh, sets us up beautifully to have a conversation with Clyde Betts. So it should not take over three years to go from a small part of an allocated site to get a
3: consent free of challenge. And what? And, and- but- Actually, the quantum, can I just make two points? The quantum is quite small 215 of a total allocation of 8,000. Wow. And two, it reinforces be careful what you sign up in a statement of common ground. Statement of common ground was completely agreed on viability.
0: Sorry, thank you, Mary. No, no, don't you worry. Um, uh, well done, Sasha. And thank you very much, Paul, for uh, that summary. So uh, it's my turn next. And I've got the exciting, uh, exciting task of telling you all about. Jeremy Clarkson's Enforcement Appeal So we're going to Diddly Squat Farm And Rob I wonder if you could Please just bring up Plan A To make sense of this I I want to show you One of the plans That was attached to uh, The decision notice Because it it Will help me to explain So if we just leave that On the screen uh, You will see there um, The uh, An area edged in blue And an area edged in green So Mr. Clarkson um, runs Diddley Squat Farm, and the allegation was that there was an unlawful change of use uh, to a mixed agricultural cafe, restaurant, farm shop, parking, and laboratory uh, uh, facilities, as well as another allegation that um, a, a use had commenced of a leisure attraction. And this all started off with an application for permission for an extension to a parking area, uh, which was refused on a on an ordinary appeal, and then following that, West Oxfordshire decided to issue this enforcement notice. Now, the lawful use of the blue land uh, is agriculture, and the lawful use of the green land is the farm shop and the associated parking. And it's important um, to understand that the story sort of began in 2019 when the council granted planning permission for the farm shop um, to be used uh, as a farm shop with potential filming and associated parking. Uh, And that was a very important point because the inspector was conscious in the context of the enforcement notice appeal and he dealt with that first. He was conscious that under section 57.4, there is a right to revert back to the lawful use that uh, uh, w- was being undertaken prior to the uh, uh, the alleged um, change, change of use and the inspector noted that the, fa- the the farm and the shop and I should just say that the, the, in total the farm ran to 400 hectares um, so there was one business one partnership running the 400 acre uh, hectare farm and then there was another little partnership that was focused on the Greenland. And the inspector said that um, the farm and the shop were central to an ongoing TV series, uh, Clarkson's Farm, and that that fact was a major factor in determining the number of visitors. He there were lots of uh, small points about the, the wording of the enforcement notice, and he was able to correct all that without causing any injustice to the uh, the parties. But the, one of the, the crucial issues here was what was the planning unit? Was the planning unit everything within the blue land, including the green land, or was that green land a separate uh, planning unit it was one of the things that uh, he had to look at. And he looked at the well-known case of Birdle, which you will all be familiar with. And he asked himself, well, by reference to Birdle, is it was he dealing with a unit of occupation with one primary use and some ancillary uses or was he dealing with one unit with mixed uses but those mixed uses capable of moving around fluid mixed uses or was he using was he dealing with one unit with physically separate uses as it were and in the end he he came to the view that the blue land outside of the green area was one planning unit and that the green area was another planning unit so he rejected the idea that there was just one whole planning unit and he spent some time considering the allegation that there'd been this um, change of use to a visitor attraction and he he said no as a matter of fact and degree he didn't think this was a visitor attraction. They weren't charging an admittance fee, they were not advertising um, Diddley Farm as a visitor attraction. It was, quotes, a victim of its own success. It was a, a victim, if you like, of the success and the profile of Jeremy Clarkson and the TV series, the TV series which was central to its location. He then had to consider uh, ground B and C appeals. In other words, whether the breach had occurred as a matter of fact, uh, and whether or not a breach of planning control um, had a, had occurred. And again, um, the inspector found against the appellants here, uh, and um, I can't do his analysis justice, but I must say it's a very thorough uh, analysis. But I want to take you to the to the grand a appeal. He was in no doubt what was going on was well beyond what you would expect to see from a farm shop in what he described as normal circumstances. He was. Uh, uh, he described the high profile of the appellant, the t- television series watched by millions, uh, as being uh, uh, at the heart of causing unacceptable harm to the area of outstanding natural beauty. There was a restaurant use, which in fact had closed. The restaurant had closed by the time of the enforcement appeal, but he was in no doubt that the restaurant use was harmful. He was in no doubt that the further car parking, uh, was also um, harmful but he was conscious that there was the fallback position allowed the farm shop to be open for unrestricted hours and that there were significant economic benefits. He felt that the harm was not so great on the overall planning balance as to warrant a permanent grant of planning permission but he felt that the considerations were in favour of the appeal being allowed to extend the car parking on a limited basis for a three-year period, so he, he partially allowed the Ground A appeal in relation to the extended car parking so that all those people who were legitimately able to come to the farm shop 24-7 had somewhere um, to park and it was controlled, uh, and um, he felt that in that three-year period um, everyone could take stock, as it were. He then went on to consider the um, Section 78 appeal and he reached, and remember that appeal was literally um, focused on only the car parking, Uh, and he granted that again for a three-year period. And so he imposed conditions requiring the cessation of the use and the restoration of the land for parking. So a very interesting decision and a pragmatic, I would say, a pragmatic outcome. So well done um, to the inspector. Charlie, can we now go over to you for your case summary and you're going to take us through the controversial M&S decision.
4: My case this week uh, is the widely publicised decision of the Secretary of State for Levelling Up, Michael Gove, to refuse a called-in planning application for the demolition of the Marks and Spencers building known as Orchard House on Oxford Street in central London. You should see a picture of that on your screen now. There it is in all its glory. Now, the, um, there was a public inquiry in October and November last year, uh, which local planning authority, uh, Westminster City Council, didn't oppose the scheme, and the main opposition came from Save Britain's Heritage, who were represented at the inquiry by council and witnesses. The inspector, David Nicholson, recommended that there should be a planning commission granted. Uh, the Secretary of State disagreed uh, in a decision published just over a week ago, and that decision has led to a furious explosion of criticism uh, in the planning and mainstream press um, of that decision, most notably from the CEO of Marks & Spencers. When you look at the decision in detail, however, um, it's tightly reasoned, no doubt in some part due to the efforts of government lawyers. And on its face, there's nothing outrageous or obviously unlawful about the analysis, albeit doubtless lawyers will be poring over it to see if they can find some or other angle. Now the Secretary of State's most significant disagreement with the Inspector concerned heritage. There were two main aspects to this. The first related to the harm to the grade two star listed at Selfridges building next door on Oxford Street. The Inspector found that the proposed development due to its height and design would be prominent and distracting from the Selfridges facade, especially compared to what he called the deferential appearance of Orchard House that was subservient to the listed Selfridges building. Now, the Secretary of State agreed with those findings, but this inspector, in his report, gave the less than substantial harm he identified to Selfridges moderate weight. And it appears that in so doing, he took into account various mitigating factors as he saw them, such as the current detracting uh, colonnade along Orchard Street, uh, which the proposed development would remove. The Secretary of State, by contrast, took the view that Given the significance of the Selfridges building, less than substantial harm should carry what he called very great weight. Now, pausing there, disagreements on weight aren't normally matters that the court would likely be interested in the context of a challenge. Ultimately, weight is a matter for the decision maker. And it might be said that the Secretary of State's approach to weight, very great weight, as opposed to the inspector's moderate weight, to that harm to a heritage, designated heritage asset, is supported by the statutory duties relating to heritage and the MPPF, which at paragraph 199 expressly requires great weight to be given to the conservation of heritage assets. The second area of disagreement relating to heritage related to the weight to be given to the loss of Orchard House itself, which was a non-designated heritage asset. The inspector has said in his report, and I quote, that Orchard House is a respectable, if not quite handsome building for its time, its loss would be a little sad those for whom it's a familiar sight, but in the context of the vast number of listed classical Portland stone buildings in London, I find the harm will be no more than that. Now, Mr. Gove disagreed. He quoted with approval Historic England's description of the value and importance of Orchard House, and he said that although Historic England had objected to the proposal, nonetheless their description of the value and importance was still relevant. And he expressed the view that the detracting factors that the inspector had referred to in his analysis had been overstated. So he differed from the inspector as to, as to the weight to be given to the loss of that uh, building. He gave the weight substantial weight. The other main issue was the carbon emissions from the de- demolition and rebuilding exercise, which it, both the inspector and the secretary of state acknowledged knowledge, would be significantly greater than the carbon emissions from refurbishing the building. The secretary of state's was that in the circumstances where the buildings in question are structurally sound and in a location with the highest accessibility, a strong reason would need to be shown to justify demolition and rebuilding. This turned to whether there was a realistic prospect of an alternative scheme going ahead involving refurbishment. The extent to which alternative demolition had been properly considered was also at the heart of considering whether the public benefits outweighed the heritage harm. The applicant's position had been that if permission was refused m s would vacate the building, which they considered no longer fit for purpose, and a new department store, a similar occupant, wouldn't be found. Save Britain's Heritage contended that the prospect of uh, refurbishment to make the building fit for such purpose hadn't been properly and fully considered. The Secretary of State and Inspector agreed that the onus lies on an applicant in these circumstances to demonstrate that refurbishment would not be deliverable or appropriate uh, because it's for the applicants to show they've considered all reasonable alternatives to the heritage and carbon-related harm. The, inspector noted, sorry, the Secretary of State noted that the Inspector found it difficult to draw clear conclusions on some aspects of the consideration of alternatives. In particular, the Inspector had said that it was difficult to judge the viability evidence, not least because of lack of information on land values. The Inspector had found that the alternative proposed by SAVE wouldn't be commercially viable or feasible, but what the Secretary of State noted was that the Inspector hadn't analysed Uh, the other alternatives canvassed by some other parties. Overall, the Secretary of State felt that the evidential onus of showing there was no viable and deliverable alternative hadn't been surmounted by the appellant. And the Secretary of State also considered that as a result, the inspector's finding that if the appeal was dismissed, there would be significant harm to the viability and vitality of Oxford Street uh, was overstated. He considered that the position was one of only potential harm. So overall, the Secretary of State found the necessary justification hadn't been put forward by the applicant for the extent of heritage harm he'd identified, as well as what he considered to be a letter, but a still important consideration, namely the carbon emissions associated with demolition as opposed to refurbishment. Now, what happens next is going to be very interesting in this case. Uh, M&S uh, had said to the inspector at the inquiry that they would quit the store if the application was refused. Their CEO's uh, strongly worded a statement uh, on the decision last week, was arguably slightly more ambivalently worded as saying MNS would review its position on Oxford Street. Given their strident criticism of the decision, one must assume that their lawyers are poring over it to see if there are any angles for legal challenge. And of course, in any such situation like this, there's always the prospect of a re- revised scheme to try and find a way through. Well, whichever one are, or ones of those routes, or indeed any other routes uh, others are taken, it seems absolutely inevitable that the last word in relation to this matter has not yet been had. Thank you very much. Back to you, Mary.
0: I think I am able to welcome Clive. Hello, Clive. Welcome. Good to morning. Hello. 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 Hello.
5: Hello, Paul Hello, Sasha. Hello, Chris. Hello.
0: Welcome to this very special edition. Of, have we got planning news for you? Uh, I, I mentioned in my uh, introductory remarks, right at the outset, that your committee's report had stimulated an incredible response. This week, it, it, there seems to have been all sorts of things happening. It's, it's as if the government wants us planning uh, professionals to spend our summer holidays reading consultation uh, documents. Um, so <laughs> They had threatened nine more at one stage, so I don't know whether they're still on well, that. It, it may be, it may be, Clive, that um, indeed that there is more, more to come. So where are you speaking to us from, Clive? And I, I've got my morning cup of tea here.
5: Uh, um touche at <laughs> uh, Sheffield well lovely
0: so without further ado I am going to hand over to Sasha and invite Sasha to um commence the interview thank you very much Mary thank you good morning Clive lovely
3: to see you again and thank, thank you so much for coming I'm so sorry it's been a tough week for Sheffield Wednesday fans with Bart Williams and of course yeah, process, So I, I pass on. Our yeah, I remember both of them very well, with a lot of affection and a lot of pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. And I uh, just just to introduce you, you're obviously one of the most senior and respected members of the House of Commons, having been an MP since '92, and obviously your heart lies close to your two constituencies that you had your original Sheffield constituency and your current one. You are an economist by background, and you read economics at Pembroke. It's nice to have another Cambridge graduate on the show. Um, And I would also, you were previously a whip in the Blair government, and you've been chair of the Communities and Government Committee, um, uh, which has obviously produced this very, very important document. And can I just say, I know we're not supposed to put our colours on the mask, but we all read so many documents professionally. It's ridiculous how much we read. And 98% of documents we disagree with. To read something which is so sensible, pragmatic and right is a delight. So I say that in introduction without tying any colours to any mast, but it's got to be set. But finally, someone is talking sense about the planning system. So congratulations to you and your committee.
5: How um, much... So if I'm getting a number of of, of uh, lawyers to agree together on that, we must be doing something right.
3: <laughs> You're absolutely right, absolutely right. Now, can I just just for those who aren't particularly familiar, will you just in an in introduction just talk about the process and evidence? Uh, and can well perfectly the process and evidence received and the purpose of the report before we delve into it
5: least yeah glad. of course i mean select committees first of all are, are cross party There's six conservative five labor we're all elected in different ways i'm elected by all members of parliament so uh, we're, we're there uh, independent of the party machineries in parliament uh, we can decide what uh, subjects we inquire into and planning has been a particular issue over the years It's it's really important to uh, how we delivered not really housing, but many other things in our communities. So uh, when the government did its consultation in December about further changes to the National Planning Policy Framework, we thought it was worth us getting involved and taking evidence. So that's what we do as a committee. We write out to various interested organizations and, of course, individuals as well. They submit written evidence to us. Uh, we then look at that and then uh, have in to see us um, a, a number of organizations who have written in though this occasion we did it fairly quickly so we didn't take as much oral evidence but we've taken a lot in the past on these issues anyway and then we produce uh, a report um, the, the committee um, discusses the report and I think virtually every case book one in the last 13 years when I've been chair has agreed the report unanimously so it's a unanimous report cross party on the evidence that we've received
3: oh thank you well, well that that actually that that degree of unanimity comes through and consensus comes through. Now, can we just identify, having taken the evidence and, as you said, having established the context, what what were the key areas, before we come on to look at the conclusions, what were the key areas of concern with the current process and the reforms
5: proposed by government? please? Um, I, I think the first one is not another consultation. Uh, there, there have just been so many changes uh, or so many proposed changes uh, and remember we're in the middle of, middle of dealing with the levelling up bill at the same time with all the changes in that uh, you know, uh, and is the system going to be further destabilised or any concerns around about local plans being stalled uh, as planning departments decide to wait and see what the next change brings so we we're concerned about that and I think overridingly uh, concerned about house building numbers I mean, that is a big issue, a big challenge. So, uh, targets that have never been hit, targets that need to be hit, uh, and what effect are these consultations going to have uh, on on that? Uh, And indeed, on particularly things like uh, uh, affordable housing uh, 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 at a time when so much housing, both in the the, the to-buy sector and in the rent sector, is beyond people's ability to pay for it.
3: I think think that's a really important point about the false dawns that you grasp, because what is so unrecognised, yet your committee does this, is the false dawn of the white paper in 2020 with enormous facts, and it just ended up in a cul-de-sac. And I think one of the things that you grasp as well is the failure to give any kind of timeline or determinative a programme for the MPBF consultations that you've identified, the publication in December 22, and no one in this world knows when those will see the light of day. And as you recognise in the evidence you took, the, the problem is, the consequence is the uncertainty. No one knows where this road will end or when it will end,
5: frankly. Yeah, and um, we we've told, we got it out of the Minister, I think it was about another nine consultations planned, so this wasn't the end. Uh, you know, this was the, the beginning of a long stream. Uh, uh, and th- that it, I think the one thing that I've learned over the years from, um, uh, well, uh, lawyers who often benefit from uncertainty, I have to say. Uh, we uh, do. You're uh, right. We uh, do. Uh, from developers, uh, you know, house builders, from local authorities uh, and others, is that uncertainty uh, causes difficulties. Uh, people don't like uncertainty. Organizations don't. And they tend to stop doing things. And wait and see. Um, wait to see what changes are actually going to happen. What impact they're going to have. Now, one of the one of the key things you also identify is
3: this question about the national housing target, and we know the prime minister mentioned it on Monday. I mean, just just is it is it still valid and meaningful? The 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 2017 300 thousand in, in the light of the evidence, do you think it is still a useful mechanism and tool to judge delivery against?
5: Well, I think there's a number of response to that. First of all, should we have a national target? Yes, we should. I don't think anyone's demurring from that. Should it be 300,000? Some people might say, given the number of times over the recent years we've failed to hit it, virtually every year, we should now have a higher target to compensate. But yes, there should be a target. Secondly, um, are we going to hit the 300,000? No, we're not. Uh, we, we, we haven't got anywhere near it so far. We've got sort of to over 200,000, but it's now slipping back the figures um start uh, housing starts are falling uh, in the first part of this year forecasts from Lichfield they're going to go back to hundred and fifty thousand uh, and maybe even less so um partly as a result of the uncertainty that's being created uh and then I think the big question then is uh with the government suggested reforms to local targets and uh, local assessments of housing need, what does that do to the national target and in some ways you you don't have to be. In you know, an expert lawyer or an expert politician to work out that, that if you're going to hit a national target of 300,000, that means all the local targets that have to be hit uh, to add up to that 300,000. And if you allow the, the, the local authorities and councils and local communities uh, to write in lower figures where they're unhappy w- with the targets being set for them, then the 300,000 target will, fa- will fall as well. Now, I know the government's got the uh, the magic answer of the urban uplift. Uh, but you know you all might, might want to press me on that. But aside from that, you're not going to hit three hundred thousand unless you've got the building blocks with all the local authorities contributing a given number towards it.
3: Yeah, well, I think I think all four of us would have a view on the of an uplift yeah, concept and and belief. But can I also ask the other thing that I found hugely hugely rewarding and insightful was about resources of LPAs. I mean, I think all four of us who have been working in the planning system for many many years. Would would accept the planning system has only got more complex in our professional careers. Yet in the other way, resources of LPAs, and I think the identification by you of the resources issue is so so important. And what was that something that became quite clear from all, all the various respondents to you about the resources currently faced by local authority planning departments?
5: Sasha, so, I think the, the issue, it wasn't particularly uh, clear on uh, just as a result of this uh, uh, inquiry. I think we first raised it nearly 10 years ago as a committee uh, and called for you know, a comprehensive review, comprehensive programme to train more planners uh, and get them in place. And, um, of course, a recognition that planning departments have had massive cuts to resources um, over the last uh, 13 years. Austerities hit planning, hit local government, particularly badly, but within local government. It, planning particularly badly. Um, we, I think it's also apparent, however, when we've talked to developers who are often willing to pay higher fees uh, to get uh, uh, applications through, uh, they're saying, well, we go to planning op- uh, authorities now very often and say, we'll pay more money. And they say, well, it's not as useless. we can't actually get the staff, even if we have more money. Uh, and I think that that is becoming a, a, a crisis now. Just the, the lack of planners in the system. Who who, who are there to be employed? Uh, And that's a longer term thing than putting some more money in.
3: And to be fair, also, individually, if one goes to the micro level, I mean, when you speak to ACE officers on the ground, their caseloads are just completely unsustainable. 30 to 40 ACEs or files that, I mean, all of us would be terrified of having, frankly. I mean, what, what also moving on, it's another element of the local authority function development plans what was your general views on how well the development plan system is working in 2023
5: well uh, not very well i think simply because so many authorities haven't got a plan in place and that i think leads on from what you just said about caseloads uh, if the pressure is on um local authorities as a whole and ca- case workers in particular local uh, planners dealing with cases to turn around individual applications that becomes a driving uh, element in, in the planning department's life uh, and, and local plans are something you get round to when you can uh, because you know they're just an additional thing to have to do now it shouldn't be like that local plans should be the heart of the planning system because without them uh, you get uh, disparate development uh development happening in the wrong places uh not thought through and major local uh contention with communities arguing events against individual schemes so Local plans instinctively, I feel, are at the heart of what the planning process should be. But in, increasingly, they become less relevant because they either don't exist or they're not up to date. Uh, and I think we've taken the view that if you uh, have, have a local plan, which is more than five years old, it, it, its relevance is severely diminished. Uh, and then tell us
3: about, we we know the timeline that we had the December 2022 MPPF proposed changes, which are obviously pretty seminal, particularly with the advisory housing target. We've got 26,000 consultation responses, which is probably a reflection of the importance of the issues set out in the consultation. And we've currently got the government ruminating on those changes. I mean, what, what do you think the consequence of that timeline is? Here we are at the end of July 23 and no real end date of when the government will finally jump on what their position is.
5: Um, well, more uncertainty, because when the minister came to talk to us about this, she couldn't give us any information at all. <laughs> We're looking at all these, uh, uh, all these representations, uh, all the, res- all these responses to the consultation. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's, I think she didn't quite say the way, uh, uh, the words it's overwhelming our department, but it probably is actually in terms of what they're trying to do. On top of that, you still got the leveling up Bill, which is stuck in the house of lords. Uh, I think with more amendments than any bill's ever seen uh, and it may be there for some time yet. They haven't got through all the amendments, the relative amendments, uh, um, the relevant amendments uh, to these issues yet. So uh, I I think, again, it's not been formally announced uh, but the the feeling is uh, that government won't come back and respond to the MPPF uh, issues uh, consultation until they've got the levelling up bill through. Uh, the re- um, the cynical, um, uh, so conclusion there might be that the government knows that it's got to buy off some backbenchers. That's what the MPPF changes were partly to do, uh, who are lobbying against housing in their constituencies, uh, and, and they need to buy them off to create, uh, uh, a lo- an easy ride for the leveling up bill when it comes back to the commons. Uh, they also got the bill through, then they'll bring these. Uh, responses to the MPPF changes. It looks like that might be the process, but but it, it's really not great that the whole of it's been held up. I think by the need to square off some Tory backbenchers.
3: And also, Mary, in her introduction, mentioned that the government is also undertaking yet another huge round of consultations, including reforms—pretty fundamental reforms—to the local plan system. And the question can be asked, and I'm going to ask it of you is how can you consult on various material changes to the planning system where no one knows what that system is actually going to look like with the MPPF? It seems, in a sense, bizarre to ask people their views until the overarching MPPF is finalised and people know what the system's actually going to look like.
5: Um, I think I can only agree with that comment, Sasha. From the the very beginning of the MPPF changes back when Greg Clark was a planning minister, to be fair... Did adopt a dr mark essential approach to these uh, uh these uh we, we've said you know after five years you should take a rain check and just step back and say what have the impact of the changes been and at no stage uh since they began all, on this journey many years ago have we had that step back that overall look uh that, that complete review of the system that 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 uh, analysis of, of what impact the changes have had and and looking forward on the basis uh, of, of that assessment we've never had that we've just had a number of knee-jerk re- reactions it's almost every time we don't hit some target at national level uh oh the system must be wrong the planners must be wrong councils must be wrong uh yeah the law's wrong Let, let's change something uh as, as, as to make it look as, as a government we're doing something
3: i know i d- i did really like your the point of the committees which was could we actually do an audit of what's happened in the past yeah. To judge the effect of things we're proposing in the future, rather novel concept, but it seems blindingly sensible to me. In the sense to, well. to do that <laughs> exercise. Now, tell me also, let probably on the cold face that we're all at affordable housing and the complete failure across the country to make adequate provision. It's noteworthy, as I'm sure you knew and actually heartbreaking on Monday, the 131,000 children in temporary accommodation and 105,000 households, records for 25 years. Um, affordable housing, how do the committee feel we can get much better delivery of affordable housing into the future?
5: Well, I think we've got to face up the fact you're going to have to find some public money. Uh, you know, we, 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 we've increasingly relied more and more on 106 agreements and um, they are, yeah, the, we're having all the arguments about the infrastructure levy and will it replace 106? Will it deliver the same numbers? But I think the, the National Housing Federation said very clearly to us, Kate Henderson, when she came to give evidence to one of our inquiries, uh, but we shouldn't simply be, uh, trying to emulate, uh, what's going on now because what's, what's been built now isn't sufficient. Uh, and we did a further, re- another report a few years ago, and we've repeated our findings on that. Uh, that we, if, if you go if you're going to hit the three hundred thousand target, you're almost certainly going to have to have a substantial element of social housing in that, and probably uh, uh, we said ninety thousand, it could be a hundred thousand, it's somewhere in, in, in around that number. If you're going to hit that figure, then there has to be more public subsidy. We said about ten million, ten billion pounds a year. The government's putting in roughly three billion pounds a year, so a, a big increase uh, in, in that figure. Uh, we're just doing an inquiry into housing association and local government finances uh, for housing, uh, and somebody said very perceptive.ly to us, if you, if, you, if you're going to have to have, if you want subsidised housing, then you have to have subsidies. Uh, uh, now it, 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 it's, it's 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 a pretty common sense statement, uh, but yeah, government seems to fight all the way around to talk about affordable housing, but not to actually put any resources into it.
3: And, and also, we are facing the perfect storm a very significant rising building cost and potentially reduced um prices for the purchase of market housing, which, of course, the only loser in those two scenarios is the provision of affordable housing, isn't it?
5: Yes, uh, and it's, you know, one of the things, if you just rely on, on one of six agreements, then uh, if there's a decline in house building in the private sector, uh, there's a decline in provision of uh, affordable and social housing as well. Now, just in terms of the roadmap, just so our viewers understand, as as I
3: understand it from spending some time on on the web page yesterday, the, the government have got having it's till mid September to provide a formal response. And as far as you know, is are the government going to comply with that? We should have a formal response from them to
5: to the report. Um, <laughs> It'll be a first. Uh, we really. We, we 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 just that you know, we 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 write regularly to the Secretary of State. We ask questions of I ministers mean, when they come to see us. We have now you know course we just do not get reports in a timely way. I think we did a report on permitted development rights, and I think it took them about two years to respond. Yep. Uh, we did a report into the um, reformers they're suggesting in the private rented sector back in February. They should have responded uh, by May. We still haven't got response to that report. Um, yeah, it is. It, it is becoming just the norm that they don't hit that target. Now, you can always accept a couple of weeks delay or, or, or an explanation saying we have got a particular problem with this one. Um, yeah, we got you know, the staff have gone off or whatever. Uh, you know, we, we, we recognize sometimes the targets can't be hit, but it's just routine now that they don't hit targets on, on any of our reports. And the, the, the more they delay, the less relevant our reports become. The less relevant their response becomes.
3: Uh, can I just find uh, my final question before I open it up to the others, please, Clive, is, is uh, if you had to um, and pick the key conclusions, if you have a moment with the Secretary of State or with the Chief Planner, what would be the key points that you'd really say, please, putting aside politics, please try and grasp in the next six months?
5: Oh, stop the constant change uh, in policy and guidance. At some point, stand back and do the the audit, as you call it, uh, assessment of what's happened in the past and what's working and what isn't working. Uh, and I think, uh, well, I'll come on probably in a minute and ask some questions about housing numbers itself, uh, but uh, really make local plans uh, the, the the key to the whole planning system uh, and, and look at how you can support and sustain local authorities in producing those plans in a timely way and reviewing those plans on a relatively regular basis because uh, there, there, should be, there should be an easy way to refresh and update a local plan, say two years after production even, because things do change. you go to look at the, uh, the retail sector and the massive changes that happen there on, uh, very quickly that affect football and shops and, and the planning system has been pretty slow in responding to much of that.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Five. Right, Mary, I believe you've got a question for Five.
0: Yes, thank you so much, um, Sasha. Cly, um, your report shone a spotlight on the 20 urban cities with the 35% uplift. You were right to anticipate a question coming in relation to this 35% uplift. And uh, you asked the government, your committee asked the government what criteria they'd used to identify them and, and you really elic- you elicited a, a, a very... Uh, Uh, I I suppose you you might say honest answer from Rachel uh, Reeves, which was really that there were no criteria, as far as I could see, uh, that they had used to identify them. And um, she promised you that there would be an MPPF prospectus, which was going to set out their further thinking on this whole concept of the 35% uplift. Um, Has that been published is is one of my, my questions. And I can anticipate what your answer might be. So just give me one second is your recommendation that the uplift be removed and that it be replaced with a standard method figure across the board is that does that still stand in your opinion
5: the uplift is a piece of nonsense uh it, it's it, it's it's a political sticking plaster um, because if, if as i coming back to the 300,000 figure it if all the the, 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 the numbers built in all the local authorities have got to add up to 300,000, and you suddenly allow some places to produce less, then you've got to find a way to increase the numbers in other places. And that's what the urban uplift is all about. Uh, and yeah, the, I asked the question, not merely uh, it could it explain how it had been done, but I said, uh, had it, did it relate to the local housing need? I asked the director, mm. and the answer was no, it didn't. It was literally a common figure across the piece because, you know, oh, we can stick some in, ca- in cities. And it a bit chimes in with what the Prime Minister was saying uh, uh, a few days ago uh, about, oh, we can build all, all the, the houses we need in our major cities. That's the place. Mm-hmm. Yes, we want to build uh, more houses in the major cities, particularly in uh, derelict parts of them, old industrial areas, city centres. Um, they're got places uh, to build houses. But you can't build uh, all the houses the country needs on brownfield lands. And you certainly can't build uh, this 35% up. Maybe, Mirach, maybe, i am just draw the example from my own city of Sheffield. We've got to build about 40,000 houses uh, before the uplift over the 15-year period of the local plan. We're just consulting rather badly, I have to say, on um, that uh, the, the 40,000 figure is, is, is reasonable. We can build it mostly on brownfield sites. As soon as you add that 35% on, um, of course, you've used all the brownfield sites. They're all on green fields. So the idea that you you by, you by increasing the number of homes to be built in major cities, you're going to build more homes on brownfield South isn't true. You build either on the green fields around Sheffield and in other cities, or you build on the green open spaces in the cities, which are so important to cities and uh, prove themselves in the lockdown to be what people really value.
0: I, agreed, and I mean um, I could take you to Leicester, where Leicester, for example, is a city saying, "Hey, we can't do it." And we need our neighbours. And then the neighbours, uh, 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 many of whom are Tory uh, boroughs, they're all saying, no, no. Uh, so if the idea was to sort of come up with something very arbitrary uh, in order to avoid disappointing uh, the Tory shires, I, I think it's backfired in, in many ways.
5: Uh, mm, okay, so it's, it's a nonsense. And, you know, it, uh, it, 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 it seems a good soundbite when you go and say it. Uh, simply, but in practical terms it's just not doable.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks, Sasha. Thank you, Mary. Chris?
1: Thank you, Sasha. I, just, I was interested, I've got a question about the Greenbelt, but I was interested in your observation is the 300,000 the right target? Um, and uh, I mean, that is a really important question because um, it's not a Stalinist figure as Liz Truss thought it was. It was Churchill who identified 300,000 in 1951, when we had a population of 50 million, and if you're any good at maths, our current population is 67 million. That's a 34% increase. 34% increase on 300,000 a year is 400,000 a year. So you know, if Churchill was saying we needed 300,000 in 1951, what we need is 400,000, and that's before you even touch the backlog, the 6 million homes we haven't built on the 300,000 a year which is every year since 1969, six million. We need about a million homes a year. Or if you're trying to do it realistically over 20 years, half a million homes a year. I mean, the scale of the problem is absolutely enormous. And I'd invite the committee to, to look at this. I really think there should be a Royal Commission into what the scale of the housing crisis is and what the solution is. Um, but my question is about the affordable housing, which you, you've touched on in your committee's report, which is brilliant, as Sasha said. At uh, uh, paragraph 49, it says the development of brownfield sites should be prioritised and incentivized, and green spaces in the green belt should be protected. However, brownfield sites alone cannot deliver 300,000 net homes a year in the long term and in particular, the greater upfront cost of brownfield development means there's less capacity to deliver affordable housing on these sites. In Birmingham at the moment, a city I know well, there's a net loss of affordable housing through right-to-buy, and that's happening in other cities as well. Do you think the government understands that their brownfield and city focus is actually resulting in a complete collapse of affordable housing? Because what they're doing isn't delivering affordable housing, is it?
5: No, I think there's a very interesting point there, there, Chris, and uh, I I don't think that juxtaposition between... um, the emphasis of building on brownfield and the lower amount of resource that creates, uh, you know, from uh, 106 or SIL or whatever it might be uh, to provide affordable housing compared with the uh, amount of extra you can get from building on greenfield sites, uh, it's always taken account of. I understand why building on brownfield is right uh, and it's not merely good for the fact you don't have to build on greenfields, it's good to regenerate many of these areas, and that's the only way you're going to do it. Uh, and I've got the, the whole uh, old industrial part of my constituency, which uh, I, I think we're just beginning to see some serious house building start. But then you look at the, uh, the, the any contribution to an infrastructure levy, it'll be 10%, not 50%. And so you, you're down to small amounts of, of that housing being uh, affordable. So... Yeah, it, 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 it is a challenge that, um, and we are going to have to build on some green fields, uh, and that's, uh, th- that's just got to be recognised. But at the same time, coming back to the point, uh, if, if you can't get as much money out of the planning system, you have to provide it through other means. Uh, the government's going to have to put extra money in because th- there's just a desperate shortage. And you mentioned we're losing more housing, the right to buy, than we're building. That's true. At least we could put the money back from the right to buy and give it to authorities and say, you've got to put it back into building more homes. Currently, they're actually restricted on which they can use, which is a nonsense, and the committees agree on that. We have slightly different views between us about the right to buy itself, uh, but at least we believe that everything from it should go back into building new social housing. Uh, that would be at least as a start uh, on that. Um, but but it, it is a massive problem. And every day, I think one of the strengths of our British political system is that we are also constituency MPs uh, and I'll go in my office later today and just get one story after another of people in desperate need who don't understand why their needs can't be met because they are, you know, great. They've got overcrowding, got condensation in properties because there's too many people in them. You've got people living in Tokyo suitable accommodation. They can't manage the stairs because they're elderly and they they want somewhere flat. Uh, the people who need supported housing because they've got mental health problems, and there simply isn't that housing available for them. And we get that day in, day out. Uh, and that's the personal aspect of not building the homes that we need.
1: The answer, Clive, is both, really. Regeneration, no resigning against regeneration. Great for Sheffield, uh, yeah. great for Rotherham, great for places like that. But we need the greenfield site because greenfield sites and greenbelt sites in particular are delivering forty and fifty percent affordable housing.
5: Certainly, yeah. that's my experience. Yeah, we need both, don't we? Uh, you you you're going There's going to have to build on some greenfields. Yes, I think you have to be careful not to use. Uh, and and the the knee-jerk reaction, I think, then is, and I think this is a valid point that if you if you exclude going into the greenbelt at all, or you then. The green fields you build on are the ones in the urban areas in other words they're the ones that are really quite important because they are the green lungs uh within a city uh that that provide that 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 recreation facilities that simple um environmental uh, benefit that comes um the, the the wildlife in a city all those things uh are, are really important to get our parks and, and, and open spaces we don't we, we shouldn't build on those at any cost, I think, and that's it. Uh, therefore, you are pushed out to build uh, in more um, green areas at the edge of cities, or, or maybe even to look at new towns. I mean, that's something that's almost gone on the off the agenda. Um, you know, should we be thinking of another new town? Or thinking that... I noticed the, the big argument the other day around uh, expanding the corridor around Cambridge, um, yeah, you know, the 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 the, the, the high tech digital uh, corridor and the housing to go with it. Would it be a good idea to build one in one of the deprived parts of the north? And it, w- it that would also mean switching research uh, funding from the Golden Triangle into the northern universities, which are very capable uh, of delivering that. And I just think we have got to be a bit more imaginative. Uh, yes, that would mean building on some green fields in the north, but but perhaps that would be. Um, beneficial in terms of the leveling up agenda as well
3: yeah yeah right thank you chris paul
2: um clive first of all uh it's been a pleasure to be doing an inquiry in sheffield this week which i'm part way through uh and obviously given you're a constituency mp i won't uh, transgress in relation to the merits of it but it's a brownfield site in the center of sheffield uh where my clients are looking to bring things forward so it's all all on message super right um and and i'll uh, be, be quite in power so it's been a joy to walk down and see uh Uh, See, they they, they, well, not quite that home of football, but certainly one of the homes of football. Um, Right, my question is more prosaic, and I suspect, uh, as with any good lawyer, you you know the answer before you ask the question. Yesterday, um, government said, well, we're we're actually going to bring in the funding increases next April, which uh, come on the back of what you were (coughs) reporting, Chapter 5 of the report, Um, but it's not going to be ring-fenced.
5: Isn't that bonkers? at one level it is um and i'll try and so from a planning point of view that that's what it should be spent on because that's where it's needed uh if you look at it from a local wider local government point of view uh when we do inquiries obviously my committee on a whole range of issues we do quite a lot on adult social care children's social care um you know parks and open spaces just to name a few uh private sector housing um Enforcement. Um, the the uh, uh, when we ever have an inquiry, there's always an argument from people involved in that sector of activity that any money that there should be extra money for it and given by government and the government should reinvent it. Now, um, so we, uh, and to be fair to Eric Pickles uh, and I, Eric Pickles and I have some significant differences of approach on policy. The, what he did a second estate was to remove the enormous number of ring fences in, in, in councils, which meant they, they got some uh, overall sums of money, but they couldn't actually decide where their priorities were at local level because uh, the, the, all those bits of money were only related to a certain uh, service. And indeed, that's what has been a big criticism of the levelling up agenda with the bidding for pots of money for various schemes, is they're all individual pots, they're not joined up. Um, you know, you can't form an overall strategy about what want to do at local level. There may be an exception you can argue for, uh, for the planning issue. It's a payment for a service, uh, and, and therefore as a payment for a service, it should relate to the service it's paying for. So I think that there is an argument there to be made, but it needs distinguishing from the general, um, general cry you get on, on, on all services. Oh, we want extra money. We want it targeted and ring close for our own use.
2: A brilliantly qualified maybe. Thank you, Clyde.
3: <laughs> Mary, I think you've got a final question for Clyde.
0: Yes, Clyde, um, I, I'm asking this question uh, on behalf of Charlie. He had an idea that we should go back, government should go back to the the, um, the the situation that was prevailing in the days of Prescott, where there should be more joined up thinking and the departments should come together so that we could have transport uh, health, housing, sort of talking to each other, uh, and, and there would be more joined up thinking rather than just having a levelling up sitting there in one um, department. Do, do you think there's a merit in that?
5: Um, I'm, I'm not sh- sure. Departmental reorganizations always achieve much. They'd be helpful if departments talk to each other. Um, I mean, I yeah, you, we mentioned the urban uplift before, and that seems to run completely contrary to the government's environment strategy about people in urban areas having access to open space. Uh, you know, and, and the two just not, do not seem to talk to each other at all. And we, we have done a report on, on uh, funding for levelling up recently. And the thing we said was levelling up is not just a one-department agenda. It has to be a whole-of-government agenda because it is about transport infrastructure, it's about skills, uh, it's about research and universities, it, it's, it's about so many different things. And there's no evidence at all that, that so far government has approached this on a, on a cross government basis, uh, and if you if you're going to do it, we, we, we do, drew the comparison with Germany on reunification, uh, where where they had a a, 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 a federal and a, a state lender program uh, uh, over 30 years, uh, and the whole of government uh, at uh, national and regional level were focused uh, on, on delivering that uh, the process of bringing the two parts of Germany. Closer together in every respect. Uh there just isn't that sense of commitment in, in government at present to doing that. It's almost well leveling up is the departments they they can get on with it.
0: Yeah, so so you're saying reorganization is not the answer to that, but there needs to be some um i d I don't know, some cross-cutting uh between the uh the various departments uh in order to maybe a minister responsible for you know the cross-cutting communication between yeah. departments to make sure that they all do talk to each other. Maybe
5: the cabinet office has got to do that. I mean, we asked the okay. uh, the, the, the the department, the ha- how you know, the leveling up did minister, uh, how much uh, the, the all of the government departments were spending on leveling up. They couldn't answer it. They, got yeah. to, they didn't know, uh, and it, it, there is a massive challenge there because it has to be not just about bits of money. But it has to be the totality of government spending. Are you redirecting it to the most deprived areas? Now the government shrinks in horror at that point because uh, wait a minute, we're not about leveling down. They say we're just about leveling up. Well, that's piece of nonsense. Uh, you know, you're either going to spend more money uh, to improve the situation of the worst parts of the country, or you're going to switch money from the uh, the, 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 the 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 highest growth, high uh, most affluent areas uh, into the poorest areas. It's one or the other. Uh, it, it can't be neither; otherwise, you're going to achieve nothing.
3: Well, can, can thank I, you. Can I say, Clive? Thank you so much. We could actually spend the whole of the morning, but right? it's on behalf of all of us. Thank you so much for coming on and giving such a lucid and sensible um, articulation of what the committee views
0: well on the current planning system and the MPPF. So, thank you, Mary. Thank you very much, Sasha. And, and, and indeed, thank you, Clive. And viewers, I hope you've enjoyed this special edition. We hope to be back on the 21st of September. And fingers crossed, we hope to have Paul Morrison uh, from the Planning Inspectorate uh, as our first guest next season. I think that's us done. Thank Cheers. you, Cheers. Thank you, Clive. Thanks, Clive. <laughs>